0: My name is Zach. I'm the youth pastor here at Prairie View, and uh, I know I say that. I think every time I have a microphone, I'm saying I'm the youth pastor. And it's because I it's I just love being able to say that. I love being able to hear myself say that. And so I, I don't know if I'll ever stop um, saying that. Uh, but beyond that, too, just because I'm not our regular preacher, uh, I like to say I'm the youth pastor. And, and let you know and introduce myself to you in case you don't know who I am before you have to listen to me for, you know, 30-ish minutes. Um, but yeah, I'm Zach, and I'm the youth pastor here. And this morning, we are going to be looking at the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, John 15. Last week, Ben, our usual pr- preacher and our pastor, he's preached from John 14 and 15 and-, and continuing in our series on the Gospel of John leading up to Easter. And since I said Easter, let me show my appreciation to Ben and our elders for having confidence in me to preach yet again, uh, and on such a day as this. I'm sure there are many, 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 many pastors who guard Palm Sunday very closely on their preaching schedules because of its tie-in with the very impor- important day coming up Easter next Sunday. Um, here I am. And not only that, but I'm so confident that there are many youth pastors who are lucky to preach once a year, let alone the three or four times that I've already been up here. And, um, so I just want to say thank you. And I, and I want to say this and maybe embarrass Ben. He did not put me up to this. He did not put me up to this, but, but just to say that we're blessed as a church by his humility and his willingness to let others preach. I'm not the only guest preacher we've had. I won't be the last. Um, I know I'm sure, you know, in seven or eight weeks, there's going to be another one marching up here. And I I want to point that out, um, not only for what it reveals about Ben and the humility that he has and how we are honestly truly blessed um, in that, but also what it reveals to us about God and how it reminds us that it's not me or Ben or whoever else marches up here each and every Sunday that's building this church, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the word taught and the Holy Spirit working through the Bible and God's word. And so I want to say my thanks and, and just show appreciation that I'm here preaching, doing this, but also just to point out that it's, it's not so much about me or Ben or whoever's going to be here in seven or eight weeks, but that the word of God's proclaimed. And having said all that, would you bow your heads with me and pray for our Lord's blessing over the teaching of his word this morning? Heavenly Father, as we look forward to Easter, Let us not forget that every Sunday we meet is important because every Sunday we meet is meant to serve as a reminder that it was on a Sunday, on this day of the week, that you conquered death, that you raised Jesus from the dead and secured salvation for us weak and wounded sinners. That as we partake in communion, week in and week out, it isn't something we do mindlessly, but that as we take the bread and the juice, Christ's broken body and shed blood, we would be reminded. Of the great work done on our behalf that you gave your only son to die a sinner's death. May we receive that grace, the grace of the knowledge of that this morning. It's my hope that your word would meet the people where they are. That you would soften the hearts and open their ears. Many are tired. Many are grieving. Many are searching for answers. And there may be some here this morning who are spiritually sleepwalking and need a good shake. You know what we need before we ask, but I ask you anyways that you would provide for us in these needs this morning. That this word that I've worked to prepare would serve your people here at Prairie View Well. And I have confidence this morning in your word, Father, that you're going to work through it. And may you give us all confidence in your word. May we listen with eager expectations for what you will say to us. We know that when you pour out your word, it will not return empty handed. And so we strive to faithfully study it and proclaim it and look at it and listen to it. And we trust that you are, in fact, building your church in Jesus through your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word. And above all else, God, this this morning, my hope is that you will be glorified. Our words and our thoughts and our songs would all be as a sweet offering to you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. When I was in elementary school, it was a practice to receive a sapling on Arbor Day, a tiny baby tree that looked like little more than a stick in a pot. And we were encouraged to go home and dig a hole in your yard, which really meant asking your mom or dad to dig a hole in your yard and stick this stick in a pot in the ground. And in doing so, we would do our part in making the earth just a little bit better of a place. My trees always failed. If we went to my parents' house right now, there would not be a tree from me planting it all those years ago. I think it must have happened three or four times, and every time it got ran over by the lawnmower or this or that or the other. They do actually have one tree um, that survived all these years. It was from my brother. It was in our front yard. and They worked really hard to protect that thing and to keep that thing there. It's a nice little dogwood. Um, but as a child... As a result of this practice, I was under the impression that it really was just a stick in a pot, that anybody could just go and break a branch off of a tree and stick it into some mud, and if you could get it to stay in the mud long enough and water it, that that stick would sprout roots and would someday grow into a nice big tree. I'm not sure when I picked this up, but I know it was the result of this stick in the pot that I I was so convinced was merely that. They just... Before school that day, they went out and broke a bunch of branches off, and, and they handed them out. And I don't know when I gave this up. I, st- I don't still believe this. But I remember clear as day that I at least once took a broken branch, stuck it in the mud, and, and thought I might grow a tree. And this obviously isn't how it works. Uh, it, it, and what happens is, in fact, like, as soon as you take a branch and you break it off the tree, you've all but guaranteed its death. The branch won't survive on its own; it will wither up and die. And on that very, very cheery and happy note, let's now turn to John 15. We're going to start in verse one, and we're going to read verses one through eleven. Um, at, later on, it, I will have verses up here, but this longer section will not be there. So, if you would turn on your phones or turn in your Bibles and join me in John 15, it says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. These, <clears throat> you abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Here in John 15, we see Jesus referring to himself as the true vine and to us as the branches. And this isn't the first time Jesus has compared himself to this or that object. Jesus has referred to himself as the door, the bread of life, the water of life. And and just last week in John 14, he refers to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. But here he calls himself the true vine, and with that illustration comes the word abide over and over and over again. If if you're not reading from an ESV and you have a different translation, maybe it says remain. But that word remain or that word abide that you just heard happens over and over and over again. Ten times, in fact. The branches must abide in the vine. Like a broken stick in the mud, a branch apart from the vine is dead. Dead. It can't produce fruit. It's good for nothing. And Jesus has harsh words here for such branches, the, the ones that aren't in the vine, that don't abide. Jesus says that the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire to burn. And the parallel here for us deserves our attention. It's, it's very, very important. So let's look back specifically at verse 6, John 15:6. It says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Does that make you nervous this morning? <laughs> did, I mean, did your stomach just drop and maybe your palms began to sweat? Well, fortunately for you and probably for me too, we're not going to be spending our time this morning talking about hell. Theologically speaking, there are few things as controversial as hell. And while some may see this as a great place to jump into a deeper look on the topic, I just I don't believe that's the point of this passage. There's Just not really a lot here to go off of, and so in order to stay true to the scripture and what is being taught here in John 15, I really won't be talking about the place of hell. But, and this is a very important but, we cannot ignore the reality of the just, just judgment of God against sinners. We can't ignore the reality of the just judgment of a holy and perfect God against wicked and dirty, unholy and imperfect sinners. Regardless of what this verse is or is not teaching us about hell, we can be certain that it is teaching us of the harsh reality of God's just wrath and righteous judgment against wickedness and sin. And I realize that the wrath of God may be something that some of us, if not many of us, are uncomfortable with. And the reason we think this way is because God is a God of love. We know that for sure. And wrath and love just don't fit. But in fact, you can't have love Without wrath Imagine you have a garden You've worked, worked up a small little plot in your backyard And you've put down seeds And for months you've tended to it I'm not a gardener And I hardly know anything I mean, I thought sticks were trees So uh, I, I, don't, I'm not, I can't go into too much depth or detail About what gardening entails But I know it's hard work It's hard work And, and that's why most people don't do it Because it's hard work Now imagine after all this hard work you've put in, your fruits and vegetables that you've planted are beginning to show up. You're anticipating you know, slicing into a fresh, homegrown tomato and putting on a big, juicy burger. The weather's nice. You're going to grill out and put that on there. Or you're going to eat one of your fresh, sweet, bright red strawberries. And you go out one morning to tend to your garden to check in, see how things are going, only to find that it has been completely ravaged by rabbits. How are you going to feel? Right? No matter how cute and cuddly you think rabbits are, there's going to be some trace, something in you that's upset. You're going to be devastated. You put all that work in and for what? For a, a rabbit to have a snack. You'd be angry. You'd be frustrated. You'd be angry. And, and you sure wouldn't let it happen again. You'd go and buy some chicken wire and you'd dig a trench around it and sit, sink that chicken wire in and raise it up. And you'd make sure those rabbits never got to your garden again. You can poke holes in this illustration. It's not a perfect illustration, but it does demonstrate this one thing, that love is often paired with anger, wrath even. When someone destroys the thing you love, you're not happy about it. You're mad. You can't have love without wrath. So, yes, God loves us, but he hates sin because sin has ravaged his garden. And for him to do anything less than cut sin off to destroy it, will be a sign of a deep, deep lack of love. Anyone who does not bear fruit, who does not abide in Christ, who remains in their sin, will be cast off. Now at this point, it's likely that several questions are racing through your mind. Am I bearing fruit? What does that fruit even look like? How do I abide in Christ? And to answer these questions, a good first question to ask and answer would be, what does it mean to abide? Because it's a word we hardly use. And it makes a lot more sense when we think of it referring to a physical location. A branch abiding in the vine makes sense because they're physically connected. Abiding in your home refers to your physical presence in your home. Yet, abiding in Christ can hardly be a physical experience. So what is it? How do we abide in Christ? This is a desperately consequential question. How do you abide in Christ? Unfortunately for us, this is not one of Jesus's riddles, one of his parables that can be so difficult to interpret and understand. Because even though it begins with the imagery of the vine and branches, Jesus speaks rather plainly. Let's go ahead and look at verses 9 and 10. It says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. In these verses, Jesus clarifies what it means to abide in him. He says, abide in my love. Now, I admit that this isn't exactly groundbreaking stuff. Abiding in his love isn't any more physical than abiding in him. And so on its own, we would be left scratching our heads. Uh, Maybe it's narrowed down some. Abiding in his love is a little more narrow than abiding in him. But it's still mysterious. Except that Jesus says exactly what it means to abide in his love. And while this isn't a physical expression of abiding, it offers the clarity we need. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in his love. Now, how is this so? How is it that obeying the commands of Jesus will keep us in his love? It's because he's a good God. His commands aren't oppressive, intended to hold you down because like God is afraid that one day you're going to be too strong or too powerful and you won't be able to manipulate you and control you anymore. Oh, God sees us in our lowliness, in our frailty, in our weaknesses, and he gives us commands to follow so that we might flourish in his sight because he loves us. I don't keep my, my son Theo, he's not even a year old yet, I don't keep him from sticking pens in his mouth because I'm oppressive. I do it because he'll choke. Theo's curious, he's exploring, unaware of the, how things work and what the consequences of his actions will be. He doesn't realize that he could seriously hurt himself. But I do, so I don't let him do that. And when he gets older, I won't let him walk in the street for the very same reason. Complete and total freedom, life without any restraints just isn't all that great. Another example is fish. Fish are restrained to the water. Sure, a fish could jump from the water onto the shore or could be swept up and stranded on a beach by a strong wave. But the freedom found in the air would suffocate, literally suffocate the fish. A fish lives best within the bounds of water. Complete and total freedom, life without any restraints is disastrous. Yet we live in a society that highly prizes individuality. We're a democracy, for crying out loud. Individuality is baked into our culture. We possess the freedom to express ourselves. Everyone has a smartphone with Twitter or Instagram or Facebook where they can instantly say everything they're thinking to everyone in the entire world for them to see. And and so as a result, we bristle. We don't like the thought of laws or commands because we think of them as inherently restricting. The only laws or commands that we approve of are those that protect my personal rights. Or maybe you hear about laws and commands in the context of the church and you plug your nose. Because words like law and command, they stink of religiosity and legalism. You don't want dead rules in religion. You want a relationship. Or finally, maybe you don't identify with either of these. And you hear laws and commands and perk up. Yes, please, Jesus, tell me what I must do to live. Tell me what I need to do to please God. Tell me what I need to do to measure up. Now, in light of all these approaches, or these three approaches to laws and commands, what exactly is Jesus commanding his disciples to do? Once again, it's spoken very plainly by Jesus. Let's look at verse 12. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you Jesus says, here's what you do to abide in me. This is my commandment that you do to abide in me. You love one another as I have loved you. Let's look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So after Jesus commands his disciples to love one another, he goes on to tell them of the greatest love of all loves. The greatest expression of love. And at this point, the disciples are completely unaware that Jesus will be executed as a criminal on a Roman cross. They have no idea that Jesus will very soon perform this great act of love, that Jesus, God incarnate, will lay down his life for his friends. And so the command intensifies. It's greater than the disciples could have even realized in that moment. On this side of the crucifixion here in 2017, we know that the love of Jesus wasn't merely the love of someone who offers words of encouragement when you're feeling down. It wasn't merely the love of someone who offers money when you've fallen into economic hardship or the one who would weep with you when you weep and, and give you a shoulder to cry on. Those are good things and those are loving things. But the love of Jesus is the love that says your life is worth more than his. It's the love that says I will die So that you may live. When Christ commanded his disciples to love as he loved, he's commanding nothing less than this very thing. That you would die so that others may live. If if your desire is to abide in Christ and to bear fruit, to be fruitful for God in your faith, then nothing short of this self-denying, self-sacrificing love will suffice. And you should desire this. It should be your desire to abide in Christ and and in the vine and bear fruit. Not only to avoid God's just judgment, but because this is the purpose of all of creation. This is literally the thing you were made for. Let's look again at uh, John uh, 15, verse 8. We'll look back at that. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It said that man's chief end, that mankind's ultimate purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose of all of creation. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And during Christ's triumphal entry, uh, we talked about this in one of our, our sang about this, actually. Um, That first Palm Sunday, the people are praising God, they're they're worshiping worshiping Jesus as God, they're singing his praises, lifting up his glory, and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, you've got to stop this. These people can't worship you as God. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And Jesus' response is, is, even if they were quiet, the rocks would sing. The stones would cry out. Even if they were quiet, even if these people would stop singing my praises, the rocks would cry out for my glory. Can we possibly be made for anything less important than rocks? Could our own task be anything smaller than the glory of God? Then bear fruit and so prove to be disciples of Jesus to glorify God the Father. Are you up for that task? Are you prepared to abide in the love of Christ, to dwell in it, to persevere in living as one loved by the Lord of the universe? If you are, if your desire is to live for Christ, to obey his commands, then know this, the world will hate you. If your desire is to bear fruit, then know this, the world will hate you, just as the world hated and still hates your crucified Savior and King. Let's go ahead and read verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. strange pairing of things it's a strange couple of things because on the one hand we have an abundance of fruit right you're abiding in the vine you're a branch in the vine you're you're bearing fruit and, and and much fruit a lot of fruit enough fruit for you to stay around and not be cut off and yet on the other hand we see the hatred of the world right because the abundance of fruit fruit is food and you eat fruit but you could also sell that food, and selling that food would make you prosperous. And yet, we see the hatred of the world. And the chapter divisions here do us a little bit of a disservice, right? Because where chapter 15 ends, if you were to keep reading into John 16, Jesus says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's how John 16 opens up. And kind of, if you were to just flip open your Bible and read John 16, you'd have to ask, Well, what, what did you say? Well, all of John 15. And then in verse 2 of John 16, it's the second half of verse 2, he says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Is this the prosperity that fruitfulness to the Lord and glorifying the Father brings? Yes, it is. Fortunately, we do not face death for our beliefs in the United States, much less in a state like Indiana. But the world does hate Christianity. Our, our society hates Christianity's claim to truth. Our society hates John 14:6 that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. You can hardly be taken seriously on a college campus if you profess to faith in Christ. Christianity is foolishness. It's superstition. It's unscientific. It's irrational. Or at least that's what critics would say. Unfortunately, we don't face death. But will you be a fool for Christ's sake? Are you still up for the task? Are you still willing to obey the command of Jesus to love as he loved, to lay down your life and consider others as of more value than yourself, to bear fruit and prove to be Christ's disciples and so glorify God the Father? Abiding in Christ comes at a great cost. Can you deny your desire to voice your opinion, to express your individuality. Can you accept that your relationship with Christ comes with expectations and, dare I say, laws and rules? Can you accept that your rule-keeping does not guarantee you a wonderful and prosperous life here and now, filled with blessings? And let us look to Jesus, Son of the living God, who, though God, took on the humble form of man and was obedient to the Father's will to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ died so that we may live. Christ considered my life and your life as of more value than his own. And through Christ's death, life has been secured for all who are in him, all who abide in his love. Because our lives have been secured in Christ, we can deny ourselves and live sacrificially without losing ourselves, without committing spiritual or mental or emotional or even physical suicide. In the security of Christ's love, the love that compelled Jesus to die so that we may live, we can ourselves be obedient to God, even unto death, knowing that in Jesus Christ we will one day share in his resurrection and live in the presence of God forevermore. This is what Jesus is saying in his often quoted statement on carrying your cross daily. In Luke nine twenty three and 24, He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We don't do this alone. God doesn't merely fill your head with knowledge and your heart with passion and send you out on your merry way. He also fills you with his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, the helper. Chapter 15 falls squarely between Jesus' talk of the Holy Spirit and chapters 14 and 16. And to bear fruit you must abide in Christ. And to abide in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit of God who teaches you and reminds you of the love of Christ. That the fruit that Jesus has commanded you to bear is the result of his own power at work in you. The Spirit of the living God himself will equip you and empower you to bear the fruit of self-denying, self-sacrificing love by reminding you of the love that God first showed us through Jesus. The the Spirit will remind you that in that love of Jesus, the love that Jesus has given us life in, we are safe and secure for eternity. And the life of Jesus for the fruit of God's love so that we may bear it as well. It's only in Christ that your individuality is secure. It's only in your Creator that you can truly experience freedom, where you can rest from your work of expressing yourself and defining yourself and being known because you are fully known and fully loved by God. It's only in following Christ's loving commands that you can find that fulfilling relationship you long for. Apart from His commands, you can't know His love. And it's only by the love of Christ that we have the ability to obey in the first place. It's only by his love and the gift of his spirit that we could ever hope to follow his rules. And you know what happens when you bear fruit? God the Father will prune you. Let's look back all the way to verse 2. John 15, verse 2. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'm pointing this out to show that being a disciple of Jesus isn't the cherry on top of the American dream. It's not the skeleton key that unlocks every door of every blessing and opportunity you could ever hope for in this life. It's not a gateway into bliss, free from suffering and pain and all of those things. But God the Father will prune you when you start to bear fruit. He will cut you. Trimming you and trimming parts out of your life that are keeping you from bearing more fruit for his sake. He will trim you and shape you not so that you can have a more successful career or be a better husband or wife or father or mother, but so that you can bear more fruit. And sure, those things fall into that. Sure, when we are conformed to the image of Christ, we will be better husbands and mothers and and wives and fathers and friends. But he's disciplining you. He will cut you and prune you to discipline you in order to sanctify you, in order to make you more like Christ. Jesus has commanded his followers to bear fruit. But bearing fruit isn't like digging ditches. Sure, there's work involved. But if we, the branches, are attached to the vine, then it will be the vine working through the branches that produces fruit so you are not alone in this endeavor, but you receive the helper, the Holy Spirit, to teach you all things and bring to mind all Jesus has said, reminding you of his love that has secured you. And when the world hates you and persecutes you and calls you foolish, and it will because the world hates Jesus, your king, you won't be discouraged. Later on in John 16, Jesus says, I've said these things Then in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See this great thing that Christ has done on our behalf. See how Jesus has, in fact, overcome the world. That he's died so that you might live. Take hold of this fact and take heart in it. To bear fruit is to abide in the vine. And to abide in the vine is to bear fruit. Give your life to Christ, obey his loving commands, and abide safe and secure in the vine. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Sundays, for the opportunity to gather together under one roof and to sing your praises and to worship you through the teaching of your word, knowing that that's how you work on us, that's how you work on our hearts and in our minds, is by your spirit, through your word. And as we look forward to Easter, God, that we would recognize the hope we have in the resurrection. The hope and joy set before us, God, that that you will return and you will raise us to life. And that we would know in you that this life is not all we have. And that in your love that you sacrificed yourself for us. That we can live here and now as As dead men and dead women, God, that we're not fighting for ourselves, fighting to make a stand or leave a legacy or any of those things. Because you have given us eternal life and we get to live forever. And this this life is not all there is. And it's because of your love that we have that gift. So thank you, Father. I ask that you would put that in our minds as we go out this week, as we come into Easter. Perhaps we talk to friends about the, the important holiday right around the corner and we would tell them about the love that you had and how that changes us and how that shapes us. And that we would lay our lives down for people around us. That we would lay down our ambitions, our, our selfish motives, knowing that we don't need to fight for those things because you, in you we have everything we need. Thank you, Father, uh, for your word and for blessing us. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.